Let's continue our discussion about women in ministry and why it even matters. There are basically four things we need to look at, and one of them is biblical. And we start by asking, well, what's at stake here? What, what's really important? Well, let's insert a couple of definitions up front. A couple of things that are fancy terms that are bantered about. One view is the complementarianism view, and it holds that God has created men and women equal in their essential dignity and human personhood, but differently and complementary in function with male headship in the home and the church. And this is a position you'll see held by, quote, conservatives, by the Southern Baptist Convention, by others who hold that the Bible teaches that, and we'll get into that more. The contrasting view is one of egalitarianism, which really maintains that positions of authority and responsibility in marriage and religion should be equally available to both males and females. Now, illustrative of this, uh, to try and institutionalize this, there's a statement of faith from a group called Christians for Biblical Equality, and it's, it's an organization, and they, here's what they say. We believe in the equality and essential dignity of men and women at all ethnicities, ages, and classes. We recognize that all persons are made in the image of God and are to reflect that image in the community of believers, in the home, and in the society. We believe that men and women are to diligently develop and use their God-given talents and gifts for the good of the home, church, and society, end quote. Well, we have to keep in mind that as we look at this, there are things at stake here because the way we interpret Scripture is at stake. How do we read these Scriptures that we're about to look at, Old and New Testament? Do we view the Bible as inerrant and consistent? Is the Apostle Paul's writing in the New Testament God's Word? All of it or only parts of it? What's the intended implication of this Second Timothy passage we're going to look at and others? And so do I accept the writing of Paul as God's breathed scripture? Or some of his teaching was and others was not? Is the Bible inerrant, all of it, or only in spots? If so, what spots? Which spots? And am I empowered to choose what spots I want and what are not as we interpret it to be God's word? Does certain scriptural teaching go out with time and with style and with context and with culture? Or simply it stays there until it's fulfilled completely? You see, the very future of ministry of women in Christendom, in my opinion, is at stake here. And this divide is drawn sharply. Now, I don't think women are going to stop ministering simply because an argument ensues. That's, that's been the case all along. And I don't know which position you take, but we're going to have to look at that. So it brings up some other issues. Can God do and approve things that seem antithetical to what he said in his word or even to his nature? And how do I handle things that I don't quite understand? And what's it mean for God to be sovereign? And people throw that term around. So what does, what does that mean? So what do we think is scriptural and what's not? Is this complementarianism right or is egalitarianism right? Well, keep in mind again that in regard to the Old Testament, New Testament, whether it's the creation of the church, we need to be careful to rightly divide the word of God. And even then, 
as we try our best to say, here's what it says, here's what it meant to them, here's what it means to us. We're still going to be left with questions, questions we can't answer, questions that we'll have, no doubt, all through life. Now, as we look at the Old Testament and both creation and the characters there and the calls that they have, we we can look at Eve or Sarah or Deborah or Ruth or Naomi or Esther. We can look at it and say, well, you know, first in the creation process, God created man, Adam. It's a generic term meaning the human person. And it's created in God's very own image. And this creation in God's image includes the identification, as it's listed, as persons as male and female. The mutuality of women and men, it carries no suggestion there of male headship or female submission, both male and female. So is God a woman? Sure. Is God a man? Yes. (laughs) Identified as both in one core God, one yes. You know, years ago, working with a gentleman, he said, so I guess you think God's a woman, huh? And it was all over the fact that I discovered as I was studying Hebrew that the, the some of the terminology used in Genesis, like when the Holy Spirit hovers over, it's a feminine type term. It is a feminine term, not type. And, and he was saying, so is God a woman? And I said, certainly. Oh, he got mad. He said, God is not a woman. Read the New Testament. Read the Old Testament. It's using man. It's using the male. It's using, no, God's not a woman. Well, this mutuality in Genesis is confirmed by the fact that man and woman together, without distinction, are charged with responsibility for all of God's creation. That's Genesis 1, 26 and 8. This equal partnership between men and women, it's also present in the retelling the creation of the, in Genesis 2. Here, the man is found in need of a companion, but none of the creatures that God has created are going to qualify. And in Genesis 2, it talks about that God differentiates man, Adam, into man, Ish, and woman, Ishsha. The persons of separate male and female genitor, uh, uh, sorry, gender identity. The point of such a provision of this comparative companionship is to show that male and females are equal in this regard. It's a common designation with the common identity of bone and flesh, the same. And it's climaxed by this expression that it's one flesh in Genesis 2.24. Look. This very thing that God has created man and woman, and we're both not going to find any compatibility in any of the animal kingdom like we will in one another. And the naming of the woman doesn't really occur until after the fall when Adam named his wife, quote, Eve in Genesis 3.20. So Genesis 2 indicates that a woman partner with a man will be appropriate helpmeet, appropriate companion, helper, the word ezar, And it's used of a person in the Old Testament, always referring to God in 29 places, apart from one reference to David, I think. The word helper then is, it's not to be understood as some expression of submission and service, rather that the woman as helper serves God with man. So the woman and the man, they sin together, Genesis 3, 1 through 7. And although it doesn't show in the English translation, the serpent addresses the woman with the plural you. In Genesis 3, 6, 
And he gave the woman, gave some of the fruit to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The fact that the man was with her, a phrase sometimes that some of the English translations omit, indicates that both the partners are together and involved in both the creation process that God had and the man-woman disobedience to God. They both ate the fruit, and the eyes of both of them, Genesis says, 3-7, were opened. And the statements of judgment for that disobedience that are in Genesis 3 are uh, very descriptive of what happens in the future. This is what's going to happen. And it's this original creation is horribly marred by sin. Again, I believe that sex, biological sex, genetically determines gender, determines gender. I know it's contrary to what you find on the campus of Berkeley and in the minds of many other people today. And I believe that the biological male-female determines gender, and to some degree, gender does determine roles, for sure. Male and female are made differently. Oh, goodness. Quit trying to make us be the same. God did not make male and female the same. I don't care how progressive our science gets. God intended that a woman have ovaries, a uterus, and the zoological anatomy to carry babies. And I view sexually determined gender in at least four different lens. Number one, the rights, as it said a moment ago, the roles that are played by gender, the responsibilities there, and what retentive nature is there. The rights, the sacredness, and the value of human life is equal, regardless of the biological sex, the male-female gender. One's not more valuable than the other, ever. In this regard, females and males were absolutely equal. All of equality, all of the same value, all of the intrinsic worth, exactly the same for men and women in the sight of our Creator. If that upsets you, I'm sorry. That's the way God made us. This does not change and it doesn't affect His sight uh, at all. It's not affected by, excuse me, by culture or context or circumstance. There is as Genesis 3.28 indicates, this equality, neither male nor female, there is this equality at the foot of the cross, at the foot of creation. Now, the roles I see personally is split. I think some roles are fixed along these anatomical and biblical lines, and I believe some roles are indeed affected by a calling or a culture or a context or a circumstance. Can a woman be called to minister? Yes. Yes. What about responsibilities? Well, he all holds us accountable and responsible for how we, male or female, choose to respond to his sovereign creation and authority, as well as our call and specific responsibilities. When Christ returns, we will be rewarded as a Christian on the basis of stewardship, not gender. So here's my final focus on that today. What about retention? Do certain God-given rules apply all the way, always meant for eternity and time until they're fulfilled and this earth disappears and we have a new heaven and new earth? Or do some, were they meant only for a time, a place, a situation? Do they get fulfilled? Do they lose their daily influence? Do they change with context? Look, as we look at Scripture and Rachel Evans and others have had some pretty good work on this. Men are 
namely signified more often and more protagonist in the Bible story. They hold more honorary positions and real positions of leadership. They're, they're related to more often. Well, and there are stories and laws found in Scripture regarding women that are pretty troubling if you take them as they are. And again, Scripture doesn't always say, well, this is right, but it certainly historically identifies. Women are identified as property in Exodus twenty seventeen and Deuteronomy 5 and Judges 5. Rape laws required fathers to be paid for damages and the female victim to marry her rapist in Deuteronomy 22. Virginity expectations focused almost exclusively on girls, and women are valued less uh, in, in the redemptive process in that, Leviticus 27. The birth of girls represents a greater impurity assessment in the Levitical purity codes in Leviticus 12. And women were considered spoils of war in Numbers 31 and Deuteronomy 20 and Deuteronomy 21 and Judges 5 and Judges 21. And adultery laws subjected women to more scrutiny and more punishment and more severity than men. Polygamy was common. Owning concubines was common impregnating slave women was common, and stories surrounding women like Tamar in Genesis and Dinah and Hagar, uh, the, the dismembered concubine of Judges 19, or Jephthah's daughter, Tamar, uh, they reveal this profound inequality, inequity, that characterized a day-to-day life for women in the ancient Near East. It happened. Now, does this make it all right? And is that the way God views women? No, not at all. Just because it talks about something doesn't mean that is God's law. So as we look at the Old Testament, we see that there are a lot of things that happened that weren't necessarily God's will, but it will relate it. Remember this. We're going to jump to the New Testament briefly and look at it. All three of the synoptic gospels record Jesus as saying this. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, your disciples, his disciples. Now, lorded over implies this abusive leadership. In Jesus' words, exercise authority, they it has no connotation of abuse here. Paul wrote in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Folks, this is an important question. And do we want to call ourselves liberal if we think women have a role, either in creation and next we'll look at the church? Oh, I don't even stir my coffee to the left. So the word liberal really has always bothered me. And I've been accused of being a liberal by a very hardcore conservative because I believe a woman can minister. A woman can, a woman can preach. A woman can teach. Oh, yes. And I've sat under good women, godly women, that taught in a great fashion the Word of God. Now, will I draw the line when it comes to pastorate? We'll talk about that more this next time. So stand by for some more good news as we do some myth-busting about women in ministry.